1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire.
2: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org That's spycast at spymuseum.org If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So today I'm joined by Elizabeth Atwood, who's written a fascinating new book uh, entitled The Liberation of Marguerite Harrison, America's First Female foreign intelligence agent. I guess the most obvious question, Elizabeth, is how did you come across this? What what led you to start researching the life of Marguerite Harrison?
0: Well, thank you, Andrew. Um, I started to hear about Marguerite Harrison when I was a reporter at the Baltimore Sun. And, you know, she became, she's sort of the folklore of the institution, as you know, most organizations would have a history of people who used to work there. And so I had heard about her and and we actually had a photograph of her on one of our conference room doors. So there she was with her name, little biography that this was a journalist who had been a spy and had been Twice held by the Russians, and then um, some years ago, I, I uh, moved from um, being a journalist to working at uh, Hood College in Frederick, Maryland, where I teach journalism. And I had the opportunity to take a sabbatical, and I thought I want to use this time to write the best story that I know that hasn't been written. And so I thought about Marguerite Harrison.
2: Help our listeners understand a little bit more about who she was and where she was coming from?
0: Well, her background is, I think, critical to understanding her and her work in espionage. She was born in 1878 into this prominent Baltimore family. And at the end of the 19th century, it was not uncommon for American women to marry British uh, royalty or to uh, to make their way into European society.
1: And her mother was very
0: ambitious, and her mother had this idea that she was going to groom Marguerite to be uh, a, the wife of a nobleman in Europe. And so she set about making sure she received the education to prepare her for that. They went to Europe every year. Marguerite became fluent in Italian, French, and German. She spent a a semester at Radcliffe College before she ended up having an affair with her landlady's son, and her mother brought her home quite quickly from that. But her mother's ambition to get her to be ready to be the wife of a nobleman really was the groundwork that helped solidify her uh, qualifications to be uh, a spy. Um, She defied her mother and ended up marrying a Baltimore banker. And So, her life was very uh, typical for a woman of her age and stature for for a number of years. She had one child. um, She then was prominent in society. She would do all the things the society women would do. She would go to the card parties and the debutante balls, and she, of course, hosted all these events in her estate. Um, She uh, was living the life of a Baltimore socialite, And uh, one of her most significant accomplishments at this time was she actually helped found a children's hospital in Baltimore that was really became one of the most uh, significant and important children's hospitals in the country at that time and later on in in the 20th century. So that was her typical life. But it all completely changed in 1915 when her husband suddenly died of a brain tumor. She could have gone back home to live with her father, who certainly would have welcomed her to come back home. But she made up her mind that she was going to support herself and stay in her townhouse in Baltimore City and raise her son there. And so she decided that um, she needed more money. And what she would do to earn the money, she would go to work at the Baltimore Sun as a newspaper reporter. And the editor appointed her to be the society editor of the paper. And so at first, all she did was cover society news. Then things start to change after World War I breaks out in Europe. And her assignments start to change. She goes from covering society news and reviewing movies uh, and music and uh, plays to actually writing propaganda pieces for the Baltimore Sun. And there we start to see some changes in. what may have been her first foyers into espionage. She does lots of stories about immigrant community in Baltimore. Of course, Baltimore at that time had a very large immigrant community, a large German population in Baltimore. And it was at that time, although she doesn't recall uh, this in her memoirs, but there are documents that show it, it was at that time she started to give tips to the Justice Department about suspected German agents in Baltimore. And so we start to see a change in what she is doing and what her role is. And now it, it, we come to the, World War I is nearly over in the summer of 1918, and she makes the decision that she will apply to be a foreign intelligence officer. And this was really rather astounding because um, she was almost 40 years old and her had a 16 year old son when she made this decision. And, um, and so she makes this, uh, this plan that she's going to enter the Foreign Service. And she first applies to the Office of Naval Intelligence. Uh, But the Office of Naval Intelligence turned down her application and said that she was not qualified because uh, it did not hire women. And so then she made up her mind to apply to the Military Intelligence Division, which was headed by Marlborough Churchill. And Marlborough Churchill, who was a distant cousin of Winston Churchill was a, or a friend of her father-in-law, Joseph Ames. And so with the family connection and her father-in-law wrote a letter on her behalf, Marlborough Churchill decided to take a chance and hire Marguerite Harrison to work for, the, uh, work for him in the Military Intelligence Division in September of 1918. And um, at that point, she would she became the first woman to go into the Foreign Intelligence Service There had been one more woman who was uh, hired by the Military Intelligence Service to be a spy in America. Her name was Anna Kleinman, and she uh, went on to become a very prominent architect. But um, she was hired actually in the summer, in June of 1918, and she spied on suspected um, disloyal Americans in Philadelphia. But Marguerite was the first that was actually sent overseas.
2: Is there anybody else that is potentially a contender?
0: Sure, that's a great question because there have always been women spies, right? I mean, we look back at, you know, Samson and Delilah, right? Uh, Women have always been spies. And in our country, we can look at some really prominent Revolutionary War spies. Um, Anna Smith Strong, you know, she was part of the Culpeper Ring that helped uh, General George Washington. Lydia Barrington-Dara. She uh, was a Quaker living in Philadelphia, and uh, the British stayed in her home, and so she was able to overhear their conversations and deliver coded messages in, um, you know, I believe it was in the, the buttons of her uh, son's jacket. Certainly they've had women working as spies in this country. Up in the, in the Civil War, you know, we we can point to examples of Harriet Tubman, um, Bell Boyd for the South, Rebel Rose Green Greenhow. She was in Washington D.C. So there have been always women that would work as spies um, to give uh, intelligence, particularly in war times. The difference comes though wh- with the per- development of a, of, a, of a professional spy uh, agency. And World War One came about. At first, we didn't really have much of a uh, spy service of any sort, intelligence service with any male or female. Um, And the army, uh, Ralph Van Diemen in particular, was one of the forerunners of this. He had this idea that we needed to establish our own intelligence service within the army. We could not just simply rely on getting our intelligence from our allies. And so that's where we see the creation of an American intelligence service with the military intelligence division. Um, you know, Tammy Proctor has done some great work on women spies in World War I, uh, looking particularly at the British spies. The American attitudes toward women spies was very different than that of the Europeans. You know, Tammy Proctor points out that there were something like 6,000 women that were serving in the British intelligence community in World War I. Um, and yet, in the United States, we see a very um, a much of a reluctance to hire women. They, they thought that women would be maybe susceptible to falling in love with their targets. They thought that they could not be trusted to give military reports. And so there was this uh, great reluctance to send women um, abroad as intelligence officers. Uh, what Marguerite Harrison was able to do in her job interview, which took place in, in Baltimore, she told the uh, officer that she was well past what she called the foolish stage. So she was really were, well aware that the reputation that they American men be- believed that the women would be falling in love with their targets. So she, she acknowledged that straight up front, that she was well beyond that. Uh, she was not going to be falling in love with her targets. Um, She insisted that she was qualified for this work because she knew Europe very well and she was fluent in three languages at that point. And she had a perfect cover story. She was a journalist and her editor at the Baltimore Sun had agreed to uh, this plan. So she had the whole thing planned out and she was not going to be a spy like Mata Hari, which is the most typical World War I spy we think of, you know where you have a woman who was seducing her targets and ch- exchanging sex for secrets she was going to be a professional who was going to employ her languages her knowledge of Europe her experience as a journalist and that was the way she was going to report on the events that uh, and and what her role was was to give intelligence to the um, Americans who were negotiating the peace uh, treaty in Versailles So that was her role and she was well qualified to do it.
2: Give us a sense of some of
0: those first forays. Sure, um, there's a little little bit of a disagreement. There's what she says she did and there's what uh, Ralph Van Diemen says she did. At that point Ralph Van Diemen was uh, over in Paris um, helping to work counterintelligence for the Peace Accords. So she says that her role was to go into Germany and to report on the conditions on the ground, giving information to our negotiators about the sentiment in within Germany and then other parts of actually Eastern Europe to help them be able to negotiate the peace treaty. And she she mentions that um, when she arrived in Berlin, that would have been in January 1919, she recalls that there was the fighting in the streets of Berlin between the communist back Spartacist movement and the government troops that were still trying to hang on um, and stay in control. The reports that do survive uh, will get written like um, kind of like an economic reports on this is what the factories are producing. This is what the food supplies look like. These are the comments I've heard people make. So that's her account. Uh, Van Diemen, he gives a separate account that's a little bit different. And his account that he wrote many years later, based upon notes that he kept at the time, he says that her initial assignment was to keep a watch on the journalists who were sent to cover the Peace Accords. And that at some point they got word that uh, cartoonist Robert Minor, w- who was an American communist, was distributing propaganda in Um, in Germany, trying to encourage the American troops to become dissatisfied and to support socialism and communism. And he says that when they got that report, they then sent Marguerite Harrison to Germany to try to catch Robert Minor. And while she was there, she then came upon the whole Spartacist uprising and covered that as well. So there's a little bit of a difference of opinion.
2: And if you can tell everyone who Van Diemen was, uh, and also who do you believe?
0: Well, Ralph Van Diemen is credited with being the father of the military intelligence division. He, it was his foresight that helped persuade um, the army officials to and the Secretary of Defense to actually establish the division. Um, at that point, then he was uh, he was succeeded by Marlborough Churchill, then went uh, was. Um, went over to Europe uh, to get some more combat experience in Europe. So that was Ralph Van Diemen. So at the time that she encountered him, he was the head of the counterintelligence while stationed in Paris, working on the um, counterintelligence for the Peace Accords. I think that what the record that she reported on Robert Minor, that, that is in the files at the um, National Archives, more closely aligns with her recollection, you know, that she says that she did, in fact, go into Germany uh, at some point.
2: What are some of the the big currents of history that Marguerite finds herself caught up in? So,
0: of course, the World War One has just come to an end. Um, the monarchy is starting to crumble. We have now a, a real, a, a serious rise of communism. Um, and the United States is trying to figure out what it's going to do in within this milieu of the social and political changes. When I read some of the accounts of this time period, I, it almost reminded me of the upheavals we see today. You know, I came across one newspaper article that said this should ring bells to the American readers, um, or listeners, that the... Um, so there was a situation where this they had to play the national anthem at this Victory Day parade. And one of the um, socialists refused to stand up. And so an American sailor shot him. And I, you know, you think, gosh, we're still arguing 100 years later over whether you should stand up for the national anthem. Um, so that was the kind of world that was going on there. What does it mean to be an American? Who was an American? Um, and it would be a few years later, and within, well, within a, two years later, we will start to see uh, the rounding up of immigrants, deportation of immigrants who were suspected of be, not being loyal to the in, in the United States. And so that's the kind of world that she's operating in. She goes from now reporting on possible enemy agents who are German to possible enemy agents within the United States. And that's where her, her role starts to change in 1918 to
2: 1920. Give us a sense of what's happening to these reports that she's involved in. I mean, are they just one report amongst many, or are they, are they particularly influential?
0: One of the most important accounts of uh, our espionage at this time was written by a reporter, um, Thomas Johnson. He called it Our Secret War, and he recounted the American spy efforts in World War One. And he does not name Marguerite Harrison, but it's clear that he interviewed her when he wrote his book in 1929. The, he calls her Agent Q or Number Eight. Her code name was Agent B, isn't boy, or Baltimore, which I think it may have been the, the connection. But he calls her Agent Q or Number Eight. And according to Johnson, her reports went were so important they went directly to Woodrow Wilson. I only found maybe three or four of these reports in her files, um, but she also had a real knack. This is why I think her journalism skills come in she had a real knack for observing and talking with people. So in addition to these thick reports on, you know, statistics and data like that, she actually would talk to just about anybody she came across in her maid, she would talk to And some of these people, she interesting, that she socialized with while she was in Berlin, she actually knew socially while she was in America. Um, they had been parts of, um, like uh, this top society. So for example, General Hans von Bello, who was had commanded troops against the, the Argonne in 1918. His wife was an American that Marguerite had known. Uh, she was from Philadelphia. So she struck up a friendship with this wife and then she socialized with this couple while they were in Germany. And you know, Von Bello would tell her about, you know, his, you know, how they were hoping to bring back the monarchy. So is in, it's very difficult to tell the the how important her reports are. Um, there's some estimates that when the war ended, the military intelligence division had 282 officers, some like 29 sergeants and a 1000 civilians, of course, she would have been included in the civilian count. Um, Johnson's report says that there would have been no more than 25 women but he says almost all the women were volunteers that the, we had recruited in, in Europe to provide reports to us. Just put, putting the pieces together, she was, I think, an important agent. The other reason I would draw that conclusion is once that mission ended, the men who were in charge of the military intelligence division were anxious to put her back to work. And this was at a time when the when World War I ended the division substantially downsized. There were very few people left in it, and most of them were code breakers. And so that tells me again that she was very well respected in what she had accomplished in Germany.
2: We'll be right back after this.
1: Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk.
2: And for the intelligence reports, is it more akin to the journals of Lewis and Clark where you're immersed in a daily reality or is it more like democracy in America?
0: I think it's both. She has a lot of uh, factual data that is just, um, you know, this is what it is, right? And yet she also brings in her own insights a lot. And that's why I think the men respected that. So she was not hesitant to give her opinion. She reflected on, you know, who she thought we could trust, who she thought was suspicious, and when she could, she would in, she would give her interpretations of the of the events and of the people she met. You see that come out a little bit more in the Russian reports, where she goes out a little bit more on the limb. Again, I'm only going what I can find in the files. In the Russian reports I see her being much more subjective, you know, much more given her analysis of the people she had met and the conditions she had witnessed, as opposed to uh, just concrete facts.
2: And do you think that's because she did not speak Russian, but she did speak German?
0: I think it's a combination. Uh, When she was in Germany, she was able to get the reports out in pretty much real time, and of course she was fluent in German in Russia she did she did become fluent in Russian once you know she stayed there a while
2: after she's finished in Germany uh we know that she ends up in Russia so talk us through how she ends up there and i believe she ends up there a couple of times
0: our, our spy networks in Russia were in a shambles at this point so we had this complete disaster of our intelligence service in Russia and we had no coherent Russian policy, we didn't know which way we should approach the Bolsheviks, and we also had this rising situation uh, of anarchy in the United States, where you had a series of bombings, and so there's this quite uh, a a huge concern about the effect of, of communism and Bolshevism, and what should our response be to the Bolshevik revolution. So he, Uh, Churchill makes this decision to send Marguerite Harrison to Russia. It appears that her her assignment was twofold. Her first was to ascertain the viability of Lenin's government. Was this a government that was going to last? And second, what has happened to the American prisoners? They had uh, a couple dozen Americans were either being held in prison or being held in home detention, somehow captive, were not allowed to leave the country. And so she was, that appeared to be what her mission was. She, um, she has one uh, statement in her book that I think we need to keep in mind. She says that if I succeeded, no one would ever know. And she said, if I failed, I'd be repudiated by my government and perhaps lose my life. So we have to understand that her not all of her successes were publicized. And even to this day, that we, do we know all of the successes? Nevertheless, it was clear that this was a risky mission to send her into Russia, given what had happened to the other agents that were in prison or had had fled. And the idea that she later would uh, pretend that nobody had an idea that this was a risky mission was just ludicrous. I mean, it just it doesn't uphold to the facts. And it's actually very typical of the way she kind of downplays a lot of her assignments and makes kind of this lighthearted banter about them. So in any case, Churchill decides to send her to Russia. And this is a big assignment and a very uh, difficult assignment because she does not know the language. She only could pass as an American reporter who was going to Russia to try to write truthful and maybe even complimentary stories about the Bolshevik Revolution. And yet, even this was risky because the Bolsheviks had already found out that there had been other spies that had done the same kind of uh They had done the same, uh, pretended to be journalists, and were in fact spies. But that was her only hope. And um, again, the Baltimore Sun supported this plan, and gave her cover and credentials that she was a, a journalist going into Russia. And all of this into the backdrop of the Russians already knew about this, and they were not giving credentials to Western reporters unless they came from socialist newspapers. They were very sensitive of what was going on. There was an embargo uh, of the West had put in place against Russia. So the Russians did not want to allow the Western media or the Western press into, to, um, into Moscow or into Russia. Uh, so she develops this uh, plan that she's just going to make a... She's going to get across into Russia by going across the, the front in Poland, which, of course, Russia is at war with Poland at that time. So she makes her way into Poland. And um, there, uh, she, she's told by Margot Churchill to stop, that they have received word that it would be too dangerous for her to proceed. and So she's told to wait in Poland until they give her clearance to go ahead. So she spends a number of weeks in the winter of 1919 um, 19 in Poland and uh, in Warsaw. And there, I, I'll give a little bit of a side because it becomes important later, she is at a uh, Red Cross dance where a nurse introduces her to this um, man wearing an American man in a Polish aviator's uniform, and his name was Marion Cooper. And Marion Cooper, uh, for those who may not recognize his name, I know you know his most famous movie, which is King Kong. and. Uh, Marion Cooper was going to be, play a very important role in Marguerite's life later on. But at that time, they just had a very quick meeting. They danced together, ex- exchanged pleasantries, and then he went on to his um, battalion. He was actually had raised uh, an aviator battalion in Poland to help the Polish fight the, the Russians. So it was a couple weeks after that that Marguerite finally gets clearance from Marlborough Churchill that she could proceed into, um, into Russia. She has hired a translator and they make their way by sled into across no man's land into the uh, eastern front of of, uh, Russia near um, um, what's in now Belarus. I think the Russian army, the Reds, were so shocked to get this American journalist coming across the border uh, with another woman, translator. I think they were so shocked by these two women who had made their way into Russia, they don't know what to do. And Marguerite bet on that. She bet that they wouldn't kill her outright, um, although the, she had been warned that she'd be executed on the spot. But she bet that they wouldn't do it, and she the gamble paid off. The, the army was so shocked, they were afraid to take any action against her, and so they just kept passing her from one place to the next until up the chain of command until they sent her on to Moscow. And they there in Moscow, the Foreign Office says, hey, what are you doing here? You know that you don't have permission to enter this country, that we've not given permission for the Western uh, newspapers to come into the country. Um, but Marguerite, maybe following her governess's advice that it's better to be charming than smart, was able to charm them into letting her stay there. Now, the other thing that she didn't know when they allowed her to stay was that they already knew she was a spy. They had been able to intercept a document that she had filed while she was actually on the ship going over to Russia, that she filed a report against a man named Julius Hecker, who was a YMCA worker, and he was a communist sympathizer who was spreading propaganda in the United States. And while she was on the ship, she interviewed him, and she pretended that she was also socialist or communist, and that she was wanting to hear his tactics, because she was wanted to do the same thing once she returned to the United States. So he told her everything he had done. So she filed that report when she got to Switzerland, and that report that she filed in Switzerland was intercepted by the Russians, and the Russians knew when she crossed the border that she was actually a spy, but she didn't know that at the time. So they allowed her to stay for a couple weeks, and to her surprise, they gave her permission to see reports that not even that no Western journalist was allowed to see. And somewhere around um, Good Friday of uh, 1920, this early April 1920, she is on her way back from the Foreign Office to her hotel, to the guest house where she stayed, and she is arrested in the street. And she is taken to Lubyanka prison. And in Lubyanka prison, she there is introduced to um, a man named Solomon Muglievsky. He was a high official within the the Cheka, the uh, Extraordinary Commission. And his role was um, to oversee foreigners, and particularly recruit foreign spies in Moscow. And Muglievsky says that he knows that she is a spy. And um, she first calls his bluff and says, I'm not a spy. How do you know I'm a spy? Because she had filed no reports at this point. But he, he pulls out of a briefcase, the Hecker report that she had made against Julius Hecker while she was in Switzerland. And she realized that you know, they had evidence against her. And he says, you know, I'll make a deal for you. Well, she first thought they would just expel her. But um, he says, no, we're not going to expel you. You know too much. And so then it becomes clear that why she had been given all this information from the unedited reports from the Foreign Office. And he says, I'll make a deal with you. He said, we'll let you go if you will report on foreigners in Moscow. And so she says, I accept. And so at that point, she becomes a double agent. And so from April until the end of October of 1920, she is trying to get reports out to the American officials, the American army officials, and at the same time, given Muglievsky. Routine reports on the foreigners who were living in Moscow, and uh, this is, a, uh, of course, a delicate balance that continued on until October, where she knew that it was only a matter of time where he was Mugglievsky was going to get dissatisfied with her and realize that she was not giving him the kind of information that he wanted. But um, she was able to keep him off uh, from you know, having her, arresting her until October and then in October they arrested her right on the eve of John Reed's funeral, in fact.
2: Am I right in thinking that she was also caught because there was a mole inside the State
0: Department? That's, that's an interesting story too. The report came from the State Department. The mole apparently was in the Military Intelligence Division, I believe is where it is. They, she, so she files the report in Germany, in Switzerland, and then it's sent back to Churchill, and somehow, so it could have been somewhere within the uh, in the consular's office in consulate in Switzerland or in the military. And so they were they tried to locate the person, but they never were able to determine who re, who gave that report on Hecker. Uh, but Hecker had a lot of friends. Hecker was a socialist. He had a lot of friends in um, in Switzerland, where there was a big socialist colony.
2: So ultimately she gets released but then the following year she ends up getting caught again is that right
0: okay so she gets caught a couple times um so she is caught in april of 1920 forced to become a double agent throughout that spring and summer Uh, one of the people that she betrays is a woman by the name of stan harding Uh, and stan harding had been a woman that she had met in Germany, in Berlin. Stan Harding was a reporter for a British newspaper, but Marguerite Harrison also believed that Stan Harding was a British agent. So just as luck or not luck has it, that summer, while Marguerite is in Russia, forced into being a double agent, Stan Harding, who is a socialist, decides to come to Russia to write about Bolshevik Revolution and the Bolshe- Lenin's government. And she's working actually on behalf of an American newspaper at the time. And so she comes to Russia and Maglievsky says, a friend of yours has shown up. I want you to give me information about her. And Marguerite at first doesn't know who he's speaking about and then he tells her that he's speaking about Stan Harding. So Stan Harding does enter Russia and is brought to the guest house where Marguerite is staying. And within hours, actually, Salomon Maglievsky um, arrests her and puts her in Lubyanka. And Stan Harding later starts to believe that Marguerite Harrison has denounced her and reported that she is a British spy. And that's why the Russians had arrested her. Stan Harding denied it the entire time. She said she never was an intelligence officer, that she was a journalist, and that she had been on. Um, un- unfairly denounced, and she was held captive for five months in Lubyanka. She went on, on numerous um, hunger strikes, her her health was really jeopardized. Uh, so she did once she was released, she uh, instituted a very hot pub, public uh, campaign against Marguerite Harrison, and the American Intelligence Service, blaming them for having put an innocent journalist in into Lubyanka. So, and back to your question about does Marguerite get arrested again? Yes, she is eventually released uh, by the Russians for food aid, but it's been widely told that she was a spy. And she never publicly acknowledged it, but the rumors are all out there and they're published. And so you would think well, that she would have no, no longer have a future within the intelligence service, given at least the Russians know that she's a spy. And yet um, that spring, Marlborough Churchill sends her a note asking to meet her. And this is in April of uh, 1922. Then we see uh, Marlborough Churchill, he's no longer in charge of the military intelligence division. He's now in the general staff stationed in New York. But he sends out letters to the consulates, to the military attachés in Asia, saying that Marguerite Harrison would be planning a trip to Asia that summer She sets off for another trip, and she goes to Asia. And she ends up in the Far Eastern Republic. And in the Far Eastern Republic, she enters it just uh, uh, the day after its government collapses and is taken over by uh, Soviet Russia. And there becomes folded into Soviet Russia. She's on the streets of, uh, of Chita when she's arrested again at gunpoint and she is transported back to Moscow. This one is the most mysterious, the whole thing is mysterious. I say it's like reading a Jean Le Carré novel as to what she's up to. You you could read it almost any way. You could say she's a communist, she's trying to make her way back to Russia. Uh, You could say she's an idiot, she's a fool for even going to the Far Eastern Republic, which was dangerous, and then she knew it would be. Or, You can entertain the possibility that Marlborough Churchill had placed her on an assignment that was so sensitive that most American um, intelligence officials didn't know what she was up to. Her father-in-law, once he learns that she's arrested again, you know, sends out a flurry of letters to his friends that are in the State Department and in the Army saying, what's up? What's going on with her? He ends up calling upon a distant cousin who was a major grain exporter who apparently was able to persuade the Russians to let her go. Um, I think that there's a possibility, that, as I said, there are three different possibilities. She's a red, she's a red agent, she's an idiot, or Marvel Churchill put her on an assignment that was very sensitive. I have no evidence of that, I have no facts of that, that's just me, but I think that the, it's this, it, can, it might explain what, what Churchill was up to and what he was have, trying to have her do.
2: And so, if there's not any evidence for that explanation, is there evidence for the other explanations? What? Well, I, I mean, I guess a couple of a, a couple of questions here. So we know for sure. I, I think I'm right in saying we know for sure that she was a double agent for a period of time. So after she was released from Russia after that period. Did the did her American um, spy masters know that she was a double agent in Russia? And yeah. if they did, what, why would they why would they ever trust her again?
0: And yet, there were reports within the files that I found at least four reports that she made, given to the Army and the State Department on um, her observations that she she saw when she was traveling through Asia. So she was still giving reports, officially or unofficially to the State Department and the Army while she was traveling through Asia.
2: I guess I was wondering, although she was still submitting these reports, were these unsolicited reports that she was just, this is what I've done in the past, here's what I think about country X, or does that prove that she continued to be a spy, or does that just prove that she continued to think that her voice was being heard in, in Washington?
0: I think that's a great question. I think that it's possible she was giving unsolicited reports. Um, yet it's sort of mysterious that she's traveling with military attaches while she's th- throughout Asia. She is. They are asking her, at least according to her account, they ask her to give her reports. There's no payroll document that says you know she was getting paid by the army or the State Department. I don't know where the money is coming from. That's another mystery. I
2: want to circle back just for a second to Stan Harding. I find that relationship really fascinating.
0: So let's talk about that a second. Um, so, Marguerite Harrison, uh, in her biography, her autobiography, she writes about two two instances where you might imagine that she has um, that she might have uh, attraction to women. I asked her um, granddaughter about it and looking at all the evidence that's there. And I concluded that I don't think that Marguerite was a lesbian or bisexual. And the other, uh, but the, the question, did she throw her under the bus? The answer is yes, she did. That is in the Russian files that I saw, her Russian prison files. She did say that Stan Harding was a British agent and Muglievsky writes in the report that she gave no worth, worthwhile information. That's why he arrested her in October. He said she gave no information that was any worth, except to report on Stan Harding. She denied it. She denied it forcefully when she came out of prison that she had betrayed Stan Harding. But the prison files show she did, in fact, identify Stan Harding as a, Rus- as a British agent. And she later says in the second file, the second imprisonment, that she did so because, she, not that she had concrete evidence, but that she believed so based upon the things Stan Harding told her. That she surmised that, that Stan Harding was a British agent.
2: Just to be clear, that was from a book, The Lady is a Spy by Melanie King.
0: That's the challenge with her. Marguerite Harrison is not a hero and she's not always sympathetic character. Um, she was could be ruthless, She uh, was egotistical and she was not always truthful. She tended to omit more than lie. The Stan Hardy one was, I guess, the exception. So how do you reconcile it? Uh, It is, you know, that's the the job of the historian. You know, you you try to draw on all the sources you can. So you look at, you know, the the files that are in the National Archives. um, And in there you'll find her reports, her letters, um, the reports that other people have said about her. Um, then you know you, you you're looking at the other biographies that are the other accounts that have been written about her. I interviewed her granddaughter, which was very interesting because although her granddaughter, of course, knew nothing about all the details of the spying, she had real insights into what the woman was like as an elderly woman. And it was amazing how many of the character traits survived until the woman was in her 80s. I mean, you know, uh, the strong-willed, arrogant teenager survived as an old woman. Um, her, her granddaughter told me the story of her flirting with the the husband of her, it would have been the uh, in-laws. So not, her, you know, she was still a flirtatious debutante in her 80s. A lot of it she's into for herself. and um, Stan Harding is an example of that. She she betrayed Stan Harding to save herself, to, to a large extent. Um, but yet, she was loyal to some. In some cases, she was extremely loyal. She never gave up one of the British agents who was there, which is Francis McCullough. They pressed her hard to, find, to get her to say that he was a British agent, and she never did. She was faithful to Marion Cooper. She never betrayed Marion Cooper. Um there was other evidence where she if she liked someone she would she would never betray them no matter the risk to her own life. she tended to betray the the socialist and other people that she didn't like I think
2: okay, so that's why she betrayed Harding because of Harding's political beliefs
0: I think so I think that that gave her the that appeased her conscience enough yeah i, I this is you know of course wrestling with what's the what's the takeaway here and and I point out that she, in many ways you would call her a failure, right? Uh, she she uh, betrayed her, a lot of her family members, you know, by certainly her son that she kept leaving him. She abandoned him basically at a Swiss boarding school. Why she went to Russia, um, she certainly betrayed Stan Harding. There were other journalists that she betrayed as well. William Estes, apparently she gave testimony to, who was another. Um, he actually was another journalist spy, but she told the she told the Russians that he was a spy, so that's a head scratcher as well, so yes, she's complicated. You think well, she was not a very good agent, right She got caught over and over again like twice at least the Russians caught her uh, and um and yet you I keep coming back to the statement that she said, you know if my successes you know you'll never know my successes." Um, only my failures. And um, I think that that there was some real success there. And I think the most important success we should take away from her is the precedent she sets as a person who as a woman who was hired because of her uh, intellect, her linguistic skills, her familiarity with the culture. Um, And obviously, First of all, she succeeded well enough that they trusted her with important missions in Russia. They reached out to her again in some way, although we don't fully understand how, in Asia, and later in the Middle East, when she worked with Marion Cooper and Ernest Shotsank to film the movie Grass, which which was a cover for a spy mission. And obviously, she did well enough that by the time uh, World War II breaks out. Thousands of women are hired by the OSS to work in jobs of uh, as code breakers, but also intelligence officers and analysts and spies. And so I think that they were pleased enough with her work to know that they had she had made a real contribution. And that's where I think we have to take it away personally. She's not always a very likable person, but I think that's true with a lot of spies. You know, a lot of spies are very egotistical, you know, they especially they double agents, you know, the idea that they'll never be caught. They're too smart. Um, you know, they, they like playing the game, the thrill of it. I think there was a lot of that with her. I think she loved the thrill of the game. And, uh, you know, what were the prospects for a woman in 1919? Um, she did not see herself as a school schoolteacher. Uh, she wasn't going to work in a shop. She had tried that once briefly and hated it. Um, she had the ego and the intelligence to believe that she could work in the intelligence service. She writes to Marville Churchill straight up and says, if you can't use me as a foreign intelligence agent, I don't have any interest in doing anything else because that's where I'm qualified. And um, it's the only thing that would lure me away from the job that I'm doing now, which was, of course, writing propaganda pieces for the Baltimore Sun. Uh, So she straight up tells him, if you're thinking about me as a secretary, forget it, you know, I'm going to be an intelligence agent or nothing. So she had an ego. And I think that that was good, though. I mean, you know, she was not always a nice person. Would I want to be friends with her? Probably not. Um, But I appreciate the, the contribution she's made so that other women could follow in her footsteps. And years later, you know, we can see the women working for the OSS, the CIA, and now of course, we have a woman who's heading up to CIA and it started somewhere and it started with Marguerite Harrison.
2: I think that's a, a good place to bring our, our conversation to a close. Um, I had a couple of quick follow-up questions, though, um, which may or may not make the cut. Um, <laughs> number one is, uh, as a fellow reporter, was she any good
1: She's,
0: she's a great writer. She, her, uh, I love her accounts of, she had this really vivid account of where she goes off to cover an aviation camp in New York and she gets into this airplane with this pilot. And, um, you know, she tells of them taking off and all of a sudden the propeller stops and goes dead. And her reaction was, oh, I'm in for a real thrill now. And the pilot manages to coast the plane to a landing she gets out. The mechanic comes out, repairs the plane on the spot. She climbs back in. They take off again. They make this great landing at the hangar, and she says, "The only thing is, I just had oil splashed on my stockings." And uh, you know, she's just a, such a great storyteller. Yeah, you have to. She's a she's a wonderful writer, wonderful storyteller. She's a very shrewd analyst. Her reports that she gave, the articles she wrote about. Germany. They really are like, she saw these street battles in Berlin that really make you, you were, uh, kind of call to mind Edward R. Murrow in London years later with the, the World War II, the Blitzkrieg. Today's journalists would frown upon what she did. You know, that is a bit extremely dangerous to have a journalist working in foreign intelligence. And of course the practice didn't end with World War I, it's continued up until modern times. And the CIA is finally has been called to task to Stop it, because it is extremely dangerous. Um, there is some thought that, in fact, Marguerite Harrison's well-publicized um, you know, stories and d- denouncing of Stan Harding actually helped um, lead to the first newspaper, Code of Ethics. So as a journalist, I hated that she was working for intelligence services, because it, it's very dangerous for any journalist to be doing that. It's dangerous for anyone who comes after them. But as a storyteller, I appreciated her, her writing. She's a great storyteller. I guess the second
2: follow-up question was, uh, is it true that she enjoyed Tea with Queen Victoria and interviewed Leon Trotsky and Mustafa Ataturk?
0: <laughs> so those, those connections are, um, you know, just her being part of society, right? So as part of high society, she, well, first of all, her father was a shipbuilder in Baltimore. And he donated a ship to England as they fought the Boer War. And as part of the gratitude that they felt for his ship donation, they invited him to uh, the whole family to have tea with uh, Queen Victoria and Queen Victoria's garden party and the Ascot race. She was in the, the royal box at the Ascot races and so on. So it was in gratitude for his um, donations of the ship during the Boer, a well, hospital ship during the Boer War. To uh, Ataturk, if she's in the Middle East, she uh, is you know, reaching out, making these connections, as a, uh, pretending to be a filmmaker and a journalist, so she interviews Ataturk. Um, Trotsky, she says that she sees him in a courtyard in um, at the Kremlin as she's leaving an exhibition there, and she rushes up to him and introduces herself as this American journalist. and. He, uh, they speak a few words in French, and he kisses her hand and wishes her a pleasant stay. So yeah, those are. she's in some ways like the Forrest Gump of, uh, of uh, American espionage. She always seems to run into these famous <laughs> people all around the world. Um, you know, the Society of Women Geographers that she helped found later would include members like Margaret Mead and Amelia Earhart,
2: and I believe that, uh, sorry, Edith Wharton, the novelist, she yeah. was involved in the history of American intelligence and in, right. in some way.
0: Yes, yeah, so the story goes that uh, Ralph Van Diemen, in trying to get the, uh, was, I believe it was Baker was the Secretary of Defense at that time. He uh, he was dubious of whether we needed to have an intelligence service. He thought, you know, why do we need an intelligence service? We can rely on our allies to get the intelligence we need. And, and Van Diemen was really important. Thought it was very important that we have our own intelligence service. And so he had Edith Wharton uh, uh, give a tour, uh, gave her a tour. And so it while he, she was, you know, while he had her ear, he said, you know, we really need an intelligence service here. And I think Edith Wharton then took that message, I, I guess, it was it to Wilson? am I'm, I'm, I'm Forgotten the details, but Ethan Wharton then passed that word up to the American officials. You really need an your own intelligence service, and Sam so Dymon was able to use a woman to to get him what he get what he wanted in that case.
2: And final question, completely unrelated to yep. the life of uh, Marguerite Harrison, but as someone that worked for the Baltimore Sun. Uh, what do you think of what do you think of the wire especially season five where he looks at the baltimore sun <laughs> <laughs> where david simon sorry looks at the baltimore sun
0: that's funny um <laughs> i always said that that was david simon getting back at the baltimore sun <laughs> um yeah david simon uh, you know he, he he had his love-hate relationship with the baltimore sun and uh, so there's a lot of inside jokes about that series uh, about that about that last uh, th- those episodes with the with the newspaper. He's making digs at the people he didn't like and he is including uh, friendly comments about those he did. so it's a lot of inside jokes with that uh, with that show. Um, but yeah you know, it's a it's a great show. So you know, <laughs> my little claim to fame that I you know, I briefly worked with with David Simon at the Baltimore Sun.
2: The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.
1: Hey all, Rick here. At N2K Cyberwire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network.